0: This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is South Paul.
1: This is Jerry from Fight Commentary Breakdowns, and if you enjoyed Southpaw, you can go to Patreon, patreon.com slash Southpawpod, so Southpaw and then P-O-D, and then you can give them whatever you want, man. Hopefully, give them 100, give them 1,000, because they're a good show, and I enjoyed being on it.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Today on the podcast, we have Jerry Lou from Fight Commentary Breakdowns. Hi. Hi, Jerry. Before, we've had David Christian, who runs the YouTube channel, The Modern Martial Artist, and what he does and what a lot of people do on YouTube is they kind of break down professional fights or really good fights, right? But it seems like your specialty is more like breaking down bad fights or funny fights.
1: Yeah, you could say that's kind of the brand positioning I've fallen into. Of course, my co-host and I do try to break down more professional fights, but we basically let the viewers drive the videos. Those don't get as much views, probably because there are other people who do it better. So, But when we break down obscure fights, obscure martial arts styles, funny martial arts styles, bullshido martial arts styles, or we break down street fights, for example, people just seem to gravitate towards it. So we kind of just go where the market wants us to go, basically.
2: Was that something you set out initially to do or just kind of happened that way?
1: It kind of just happened that way. So I started my channel. I did Kung Fu for many years when I was little Mm -hmm. and I stopped because of injury. You know, you do these high flying kicks. I'm actually going to injure something. So I injured myself and then I didn't get back into martial arts for many years. Mm -hmm. And so I started the channel because I was in LA. I knew a lot of BJJ people because LA is like one of the BJJ capitals. And I said, I don't want to get back into martial arts. I have all these crazy, talented BJJ people around me. Let's do something. So there were these fights from the Team Fighting Championship, five-on-five MMA fighting until the last man. And they had no commentary. So I said, why don't I provide the commentary? I got these BJJ people and all these fights end up on the ground. So bam, we got the perfect team. And so that's how I got started. We were doing more serious commentary at first.
0: You're doing serious commentary for Five on Five, which is kind of novel. is kind of
1: novel and kind of funny. I mean, you watch the fights. Most of them, it's different weight classes. So it's big guys beating down little guys. So it's not really professional.
0: So at the beginning, you were trying to do it straight where you were trying not to make it really funny. Yeah.
1: And then eventually what happened was um, so my original co-host went back to Phoenix. And so I had about four months where I didn't upload on that channel. And then I met a new guy, Rob. And Rob was very technical, but then around that point, the channel started blowing up a little and all these other people wanted to get in on it. And most of these other people didn't have flight experience. So that's kind of where the comedy started, because I was bringing through people and we wouldn't know much, and we would watch the 515s and we stopped being serious. We just started going, oh, oh, my God, pounded in the dough, blah, blah, blah. And
0: Your comedy, is it influenced by YouTube? Because YouTube has its own kind of style of comedy.
1: Um, I would say maybe it's partly influenced by YouTube, but when I started those videos that you talk about, the ones where I kind of do funny narration over even funnier techniques, I was more inspired by America's Funniest Home Video (laughs) because I just remember how the guys in America's Funniest Home Video, they, they took a video that could have been funny by itself and they somehow made it either more funny or more cringe or something. So they added value to it. And I guess that's what I wanted to do.
0: So how do you find your videos then?
1: So at first, what happened was, so this is actually very interesting. YouTube's been cracking down on street fights and all this stuff. So at first, if you search it up, you would just find millions and millions. But a lot of those street fight breakdowns might actually got taken down by YouTube. Why? So you, so here's, for those of you watching who are content creators, here's an inside scoop. okay? YouTube's trying to become a Hulu or a Netflix. And you kind of saw this years ago because YouTube introduced YouTube Red, But it never took off because we think of YouTube as, oh, yes, creators, it's PewDiePie, it's that. But YouTube, if you look at the YouTube ads they've been serving you, it's all, oh, join YouTube Premium, join YouTube Music. And they've been investing a lot of money into shows. They have the viewer base and they have the money. Why not? Right? So that's where YouTube's going. They're going into premium content and to... Get the community. Get the production companies. Get Hollywood ready. They're kicking off a lot of this kind of low quality material. Uh, like the first video, I got taken down. I was just doing funny breakdowns of Chinese girls fighting. They got taken down, and I didn't learn my lesson, right? And then I got another video taken down. I was breaking down Chinese people knife fighting. No blood, nothing, but there was knives involved. That got taken down. Yeah. And then it just I just kept not learning my lesson, and then eventually I learned my lesson. Okay, just. Don't do any street fights on YouTube. I do it on Facebook. And that's one of the reasons my Facebook blew up so quickly.
0: We'll get into that. But on YouTube, if you get a certain number of warnings, don't you also... Yeah, your
1: channel gets at risk for taking down. And actually, YouTube just implemented a new policy. They can take your channel down even without any strikes.
2: I remember reading a Forbes article where it talked about how YouTube is the biggest threat to Netflix and Hulu because the amount of content they can generate new without having to worry about production or approval is staggering. Yeah, For one thing Netflix makes, you can make 20 on YouTube yeah. in the same day. Yeah, So it's not even close. Yeah,
1: And think about this too, two out of three people watch YouTube on their TVs. This is something most people don't realize. We think of our generation, Generation Y thinks of YouTube as the computer, maybe even the smartphone, because that's how we discovered YouTube. But everyone's getting TVs now and TVs dying. And it's so easy to stream Roku and all these apps even have the YouTube app on there. Yeah. So you can watch YouTube on your TV. So if you're a person working at YouTube, you're thinking, okay, well, everyone's watching us on TV. We can waste our time, hire a lot more people, deal with 20 million creators, generate the same amount of revenue. Or we can work with 20 Hollywood production companies, generate really high quality shows, deal with 20 million fewer people, and still generate the same amount of revenue. What are you going to pick? For the sake of efficiency, think like that, people. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying, guys. For those of you watching, it sounds like I'm predicting doom for YouTubers, but it's been written in the in the walls, whatever the expression is, for a long time. So, for those of you who are YouTubers or aspiring YouTubers, get on YouTube, but also spread your seeds elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I could tell you're a seasoned YouTuber because for uh listeners at home you can't see how animated Jerry is but also he keeps talking about watching so when he says that there is no video content associated with this this is all audio it's just that Jerry's very used to being visual you look at us cuz we've only done audio our arms don't even move when we're talking <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm like watching Jerry over here and I'm like damn this guy's made for TV man he's so animated like Paul doesn't even make facial expressions so <laughs> he's made for radio <laughs> yeah. So Facebook, you were mentioning that and, you know, spreading the seeds out. Most of us don't think of Facebook as a competitor to YouTube.
1: So Facebook, if you remember two years ago, it was all BuzzFeed videos and really pretty well-shot clickbaity videos. And then I don't know if you realize, but it disappeared. So for those of you watching Facebook, why did those cool cooking videos and cool panda videos and cool cat videos suddenly disappear? It's because Facebook kicked them all off. A lot of these companies were making so much money on Facebook, doing clickbait stuff. And Facebook realized, okay, we're a platform for creators, not creators, we're a platform for users, right? Facebook was built on users, you know, talking to each other, arguing, whatever, sharing photos. So they, they kicked off all those big companies. So now suddenly there's a void. Well, users are used to videos, but we don't want these videos of companies generated. So they're like, okay, we got to bring back the videos, but make it more how it used to be a user focus. So that's what happened. So I'm part of the program where they're trying to bring users who are content creators back on Facebook.
0: People call everything social media, but that's not technically true. Like YouTube is social media, right? But Facebook is a social network. That's why they originally kicked these videos off because they wanted it to be just a network of people socially engaging with each other. Right. And there was just too much content. So now they're trying to bring back the content, but make it more user generated, but it'll be like YouTube, like YouTube, the users are also the content creators. Right. But do you think that has a space on YouTube? Like how is your, how are your videos doing?
1: Um, so the, there's two differences I see between Facebook and YouTube content creation and the engagement slash the viewership it generates. One is because Facebook catered towards those companies for a long time, it has a different distribution model, which is organically, you only reach about 3% to 7% of your all your potential audience. Because the companies that used to take advantage of Facebook, they would be able to they would be able to pay and then they would reach 100% of their audience. So that's how Facebook earned a lot of money was paid advertising. But if you're going to have users now put content on your platform, you better change that algorithm. Because if I'm only going to reach 7% of my audience organically, I'm not potentially willing to pay, one, that's money, two, it's not easy to learn how to target people. You know, that's an art in itself. People have jobs that are paid hundreds of thousands of dollars per year doing this stuff for other companies. So it's, you're asking me to pick up a new skill to do paid advertising every day. So that's a potential bottleneck. Um, The other, this is not a bottleneck. This is actually something that Facebook has to its advantage, which is that Facebook has a lot of built-in stuff for engagement. So on YouTube, you can like... The comment, you can card it if you're the creator. But on Facebook, you can add a crying emoji. You could add an angry emoji. Okay. You can also share the video and tag people, which you can't do on YouTube. So Facebook, because it was built for user-to-user interaction, it's more meant for engagement. So if you want to put up a video on Facebook and get just hundreds of thousands of people talking smack about it, that's the perfect place. And that's why all the fake news controversy, that's why it all took off. Mm. Because it's like these Russian companies are like, oh, people are gonna argue, so let's generate fake news, and boom. So f- now with uh, the book and that fake news thing, to be able to, to be a news site on Facebook, you have to give them your passport to prove you're a legitimate company or a legitimate person. Mm. So like, I don't do any legit news, right? I'm just doing funny stuff. So I haven't clicked that option. Be like, oh yeah, I wanna I wanna do political
0: ads. It seems like Facebook is trying to be its own internet. Yeah, exactly. Instagram is just a place for photos. YouTube is just videos. But just like with the fake news, it became its own kind of ecosphere where people don't leave Facebook. Everything happens within Facebook. And now that video and entertainment and things like that are going to be on there, it really becomes like, I don't know, maybe younger people won't even know that there is an actual internet where you put you know actual URLs into the, uh, into the address bar and you have to go there.
1: Uh, to add to your point, I've surveyed my audience on YouTube and I've surveyed my audience on Facebook. First of all, they don't, they're completely different. But second of all, 90% of my audience on YouTube does not go on any other platform. Same with my Facebook audience, they don't go on YouTube. There's a specialization going on, and it's exactly proven your point, Sam, that people are going to be more niche in the platform they follow. They're going to get everything from YouTube or everything from t- Twitter's off, but everything from Instagram, everything from Facebook.
0: Do you find a difference in age? Yeah,
1: so I, I reach a little bit more older population on Facebook. Um, social economic class-wise, I reach a much lower social economic class, meaning they make less money. And education-wise, my Facebook audience has less education.
0: that's like the opposite of what people think people think youtubers are like the dumber younger i guess is still the stereotype but like dumber less educated less income but you're saying you see more of that on facebook yeah
1: because what happened was the people like us who started with facebook when we were in high school we grew up right so now the youtube audience we we are that age we're educated we're making money hopefully the, the majority of my audience, and this is my audience on YouTube, are older millennials. So basically people grew up with me. Maybe they grew up watching Wong Fu and stuff like that. But now they're a little older. So, but the people on Facebook, a lot of them, I, this is how I think about it. A lot of the people on Facebook that watch my stuff, They were the people that joined Facebook late. They weren't the college kids, the high school kids that got Facebook. They're like, oh, this is the cool thing that all these young people are getting. Let's get it too.
0: So these are the people on Facebook. The people who believe in fake news. Yeah, exactly. The people (laughs) who believe in fake news. (laughs) Because
1: all the young people that, like us who use Facebook a lot back in the day, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I don't use Facebook as much before I had my channel blow up on Facebook because for me, Facebook just felt, oh, it's fake news. Oh, just people showing off. Oh, I could just call my friend. I don't need to interact with them. So I actually stopped using Facebook as a young person as much. So there was like a really weird transition of demographics on Facebook where only slightly older people started using it. And I think it's still the case.
2: How are you able to get such demographic information for both?
1: It's all provided. Because that's a little creepy, man. (laughs) And that shows how much they know. I mean, the fact that I know all this, they know even more about your browsing habits and my browsing habits. They're tracking everything. You know that the Facebook Messenger, you have to agree to let them listen to you, right? You know that the Facebook Messenger, there's this checkbox on there. You have to agree to let them listen to your microphone.
2: Yeah, there was that controversy for a while. So a lot of people never installed their Messenger. I deleted
0: it.
1: I don't have the Facebook Messenger.
0: Well, Instagram, like all their suite of uh, products, they all can kind of listen in. And... uh they got into a lot of trouble back in the day, the ads that you could target because they use so much information, not just income, but like race and uh, political views. And uh, you could really make it racist if you wanted to. So I'm surprised that they still let you track income because I thought they were trying to get rid of that. But maybe it's somewhere in the legal gray zone. Yeah. They're they're in a lot of trouble. I trouble cannot these track days.
1: race anymore. And yeah, if you compare what Facebook, with the data available to me. Two years ago versus now, way, way less data available to me now. Two years ago, I could learn everything. I learned what they liked. I could learn all this stuff, but I can't learn that anymore. I can still target that in my advertising, but I don't know as a general kind of rule of thumb, just looking at my audience, that kind of information. So it's a little less available.
0: You know, what's interesting is what's changed for me and a lot of people is now instead of just using These social networks, like I don't think of myself as somebody who uses YouTube or Facebook, like Paul and I and a bunch of other people. Now we do a lot of our talking and kind of our Internet engagement on private channels like discord. So now I see that kind of private. Uh, social network kind of getting very popular. It's not popular with everybody, but it is taking up that space that a lot of these other platforms, like I don't chat ever on Facebook Messenger. I tell them, you find me on Discord. And if they're like, what's that? Then I'm like, forget about it. <laughs> like, and that's the other thing, like uh, for our, our Patreon subscribers, they have access to our Discord too. It's very important that, it, you know, you just don't want people like snooping in on your on your data. Like data is the new real estate. You don't want people robbing it from you. That's our most valuable thing.
1: Yeah, I definitely, because there's so much, people are also looking for a more close-knit community. And so I definitely see that too. Most of the YouTubers I follow, they have a private Discord community. And in fact, I had one for a while, but I did it wrong. So I let too many people in and um, after my injury, training BJJ, because I was dazed and everything, I just nuked that community, I deleted it. So all my viewers were like, Jerry, what happened to you? I'm like, well, I don't know my injury. It was a head injury? Yeah, it was a head injury.
0: What happened? I got hit by a knee. Oh, man. And you got a concussion? Yeah. (laughs) We just had a previous guest talking about a concussion. Uh, I guess, you know, whenever you have something man-on-man, where there's a lot of wrestling involved, people think because there's no punching, you can't get head damage. But you can just because when you're just running at each other and trying to tackle each other and just rolling around, your head does get bonked.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of... Um, when I was training jiu-jitsu, a lot of the upper belt friends I knew told me, hey, make sure if you're going to train with someone bigger, make sure their purple belt are above. But the problem is sometimes in class, there weren't purple belts or brown belts that, were, that could wanted to train with you. Or sometimes the belt was filled with white belts. The, yeah. the class was filled with white belts. Sometimes you had to just roll or spar or do moves with another white belt. And sometimes he, chances are he's bigger.
0: And or spaz. So,
1: or spaz. So unfortunately, they, they just use too much for sometimes
0: it's a weird narrative online because i think when you first join a martial art like brazilian jiu-jitsu which is probably one of the most popular in the u.s if not the most popular now at this point is a lot of the you know beginners they get so excited that they'll start a blog right and they're talking about their experience or they'll talk they'll start a youtube channel or they'll talk about it on Facebook. So what happens is the white belts drive the narrative. People who've been training for a long time, they're they're not like that. They don't need to tell people about it, right? So what happens is these white belts kind of spread this narrative of like, oh man, I get my ass kicked by these black belts or like, these higher belts. Like they make it seem like they're the scary ones. But in reality, the black belts or higher belts like me, were are terrified of white belts yeah. because we rarely will get injured by uh, a higher belt it'll all be from lower belts but they do have this kind of like self-centric view where they think oh it's impossible for me to ever hurt anybody because i'm a white belt and only higher belts can hurt you because they know more and it's like dude because they know more is why they won't hurt you or they're less likely to hurt you and because you don't know nothing and you're just like this giant like blob of like limbs It's very likely that you'll hurt us And a lot of people are strong. A lot of people who are attracted to Jiu-Jitsu, maybe they don't know anything, but they're strong people to begin with. You rarely see somebody like in the classic martial arts idea of this guy who's never lifted weights and then just shows up to the Jiu-Jitsu gym. I don't know if that used to happen in the past, but now most of the people you see walk in, they're kind of built.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) So let's get into the UFC card that just happened over the weekend. It is the first UFC on ESPN+. It was headlined by Henry Cejudo versus T.J. Dillashaw with T.J. Dillashaw coming down 10 pounds to the flyweight division to challenge Henry Cejudo for his title so that T.J. Dillashaw can be the first champ champ that went down a weight division to do it. Everybody else has gone up in weight to do it. And one of the things that we talked about in our preview show was that Henry Cejudo is probably the worst style matchup for TJ. We're also going to see a TJ that's much more diminished, like the unhealthiest version of TJ. And finally, the last point that we made was that we really have no idea how good Henry Cejudo got because in his fight with Mighty Mouse, he got kicked right in the leg, right at the beginning and his leg went dead and he had to just stay in this uh, southpaw stance, which he doesn't like to do. He likes to switch a little bit, But he mostly fights orthodox from this new karate stance. He had to change his whole style in that fight. So that was the other question mark. It's like, how good has he become in this time off? Like after Wilson Hayes, when he knocked him out, it really looked like he turned a corner. But we really had no idea. So there was a lot of question marks going into this. And then it kind of uh, went the way where a lot of the concerns that we had were addressed. We found out what happens.
2: It's interesting to note that the first time the UFC debuted on Fox, they had Cain Velasquez versus Junior Dos Santos. And that ended in like 64 seconds. So this was half the time. And it was also another title fight. So when they said, oh, this hasn't happened before, I was like, yes, it has. It happened seven years ago.
0: But that was such a folly because when they did it on Fox, that was the only fight they had. Correct. There was no card. It was only that title fight was the whole show. They wanted to make it like a boxing event or something, just one title fight. You know, like a Mike Tyson fight, you know, that they do on TV way back in the day. And that was the mistake. It ended so fast. Whereas with this, there wasn't as much outrage even though there still is because people are crying about how short it was, but you had all these other great fights leading up to it.
2: I don't know if you guys noticed but the production on ESPN Plus was amazing. It looks like because they're dedicated to broadcasting sports, the transitions were seamless, the cuts, commercial breaks, the commentary, even though Stephen A. Smith wasn't as bad as people made it out to be. For a guy who doesn't traditionally cover MMA, he deferred to the experts quite often. So that was nice. He didn't pretend to know. And although the UFC is now moving in the path of hiring ex-fighters, it's nice to see ESPN personalities pop in every now and
0: then. The production was like noticeably better than Fox. What were your thoughts about just the event, not even the fights yet? But what did you think about the production?
1: So for me, I usually watch it at the down and out bar. And for some reason, they were showing it. So I had to, I just scrambled to watch it. I ended up watching it on a much smaller screen, unfortunately. So I'm not able to comment on the production quality because I only saw it on a smaller screen.
0: So you have to watch it on the app. Yeah, exactly. I,
1: I couldn't watch it on a big screen or on a TV in a bar. And I, I think a lot of bars got messed up because of this sudden switch. They were used to showing pay-per-view and boxing was showing that night too. So a lot of them, were just like, you know what, let's show the boxing match and then ESPN Plus can wait in the future.
0: That's the other thing I've been curious about with this new deal where it's streaming on their streaming service. There's a lot of places that are doing it legally. They have a license to do a closed circuit thing with the UFC or maybe with ESPN. I don't know. But how do they do the technological side where they show an app on their TVs? You talked about these smart TVs where you could do YouTube directly. So it's not of a, as big of a problem if you're watching it from home. But these businesses, how are they going to play these ESPN Plus cards?
1: Exactly.
2: Can they do a... I don't know if the technology term for it is correct, but you get it off one device and then you connect all the TVs to that one device and you
0: mirror it. I'm sure there's a technological way to do it, right? But these bar owners or these kind of people who run these places, do they know how to do that? Exactly. (laughs) exactly. It's almost like they set all that up when they first bought the bar and when the TVs were getting all installed, somebody did all that for them. They would need to bring somebody else to do it because, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know if like techie nerds Are the type to open sports bars. Exactly. Exactly. The Zone did that Canelo fight, right? And what I heard afterwards was that not a lot of people signed up to watch it. And they paid Canelo a ton of money. 300 million plus. So there you go. Not just for that one fight, but it was like a long-term deal. So I wonder what the subscription rate was for the UFC's involvement with ESPN Plus, if that helped them out a lot.
2: I remember reading that they signed up 580,000 new subscribers to ESPN Plus.
0: After the UFC deal? Correct. So the big question is, is how did the fighters benefit from this platform? They don't. (laughs) Because I think with stuff like the NBA or or whatever, they have these lucrative TV deals, right? And with pay-per-view, you could get a percentage. But with streaming on a platform like this, What's the benefit?
2: I think if there's no fighter representation at the table, they're not going to get a cut of it. It's similar to when they had the Reebok deal. There was no fighter there. When they decided to move and make Monster their official sponsor of the UFC for energy drinks, no one was there. And even when Litecoin became the official cryptocurrency sponsor of the UFC, what if their fighters were like, I prefer Monero. Who cares? They don't get a say.
0: Whatever contract they got, they're kind of screwed. I think that's why a lot of the bigger name fighters, they don't want to do long-term contracts anymore of like five fights. Or some people used to do like 10 fight deals. Now they're just trying to do one or two at a time. And I think that's a lot better. It puts a lot of the uh, power back into the driver's seat of the fighters so long as they're winning. So let's get into the card. So TJ Dillashaw, or actually I should say, it's really Henry Cejudo versus T.J. Shaw because it was T.J. coming down uh, a weight division to challenge the champion. Jerry, what did you think about the fight?
1: Well, the biggest controversy, of course, was whether the stoppage was premature. And so, in my opinion, I didn't think the stoppage was premature. It looked, I mean, T.J. looked conscious, but it, he was getting a lot of hits, man. It didn't look like he had a proper or thought out response to what to do next. So I think it was good. Um, one thing I will do is I asked my audience the same question, so okay. I'll read some of their thoughts too. Yeah, so I asked this on YouTube. I said, I asked my audience, I said, was the ref stoppage during the Dillashaw vs. Hudo fight too premature? And I had four options. I said yes, yes for a championship fight, not sure, and no. And 46% of my audience said yes for a championship fight. So they felt like, because this was a championship fight, you know, they're both top-notch fighters. Maybe they could have the ref could have given it a little bit more time. And I'll just read some of the top-voted comments. I'll read three. So shout-out to Combat Man. He said, don't understand the whole in-a-championship fight sentiment. Either it was a legitimate stoppage or it wasn't. Regardless of the oversized novelty belt, the winner gets... Um, okay. So he does not, he just thinks it was not a premature stoppage. It was a good stoppage. James Kirby says, yes, he might've been rocked, but he was still defending himself. He may have only lasted a couple more seconds, or he may have been able to come out of it and win, but we'll never know. But he was definitely not out. So he thought it was premature. And then Brandon Short said, it may have looked a little early on first watch, but TJ was getting murked, Either way, in my opinion. So I guess Brandon should agreed with what I think. It's just, it looked like TJ was going to get pounded either way. So it should have stopped to prevent too much brain damage.
0: This was also the unveiling of the new belt, which would be weird if they unveiled the new 125 flyweight division belt, you know, and then they got rid of the division. Here's the new belt. Okay, you can never wear it again because the division is gone. Uh-huh. So that would be very unusual. But what did you guys think about the belt?
1: I mean, in my opinion, it looked kind of ugly. <laughs>
2: I understand what they were going for it.
0: Wait well, wait wait, what were they going for that? <laughs> what
2: is that look? The look? I don't know. It's like Sam or Jerry. If I said, "Hey, I have an idea for a belt." I gave you no visual. I just said, "Okay, give it to in give it to me in like a octagon shape. It should have flags for the first champions and then you should also include the name somewhere and make it very geometrical." Go. But I gave you no visuals and both of you came up with design. Neither of it was correct. Like, let's just combine it and let's figure it out. So I thought no one at the top gave them a visual of this is what we were going for. You just all described it through text.
0: You know, somebody got paid a lot of money to design that belt. <laughs> <laughs> Can they get that money back? Yeah. No, I seemed like they were happy with it. What it reminded me of was like a bad pro wrestling belt. Cause I've seen very ugly belts in pro wrestling, not just WWE, but like all of them, like, because the belt itself is a gimmick. So it reminds me of when they came out with that new belt long time ago, uh, for John Cena, where it was a spinner belt, (laughs) where you could spin the center of it. Like, remember when like, uh, you know, cars, the, the rims had, uh, spinners on it. Yeah, Yeah, That's what it reminds me of because. Uh, The UFC belt looks kind of like either a rim or a hubcap, you know, (laughs) and that kind of looked like the John Cena belt, which everybody thought was also stupid looking. (laughs) It kind of shows you where the UFC management is at. It definitely looked like because of ESPN's influence, it kind of elevated the UFC into uh, from amateur hour to something, you know, a little bit more like ready for prime time. But the UFC management themselves looking at the belt, you're like, Uh, I don't know if the management or Dana White is ready for prime time. What did you guys think about Trevor Whitman? So Trevor Whitman, for those of you who don't know, he's a well-established MMA coach. He coaches people like Justin Gaethje and Rose Namajunas, right? So they brought him in kind of like how they do in boxing, where they bring in a professional where you don't see their face, you just only hear their voice kind of do an analysis from um, the coach's perspective, or sometimes they bring in an old judge who kind of gives their uh, experience of how they would judge the rounds, right? So Trevor Whitman kind of played that role in this. But I kind of felt like they didn't know how to fully utilize them yet. What did you guys think?
2: I really liked it. The UFC used to do it back in the day with Eddie Bravo. If you remember, Eddie Bravo did that unofficial scoring.
0: He was awful.
2: He was, but they did it with him.
0: I like the intent,
2: though. Correct. And I don't know if it was the UFC bringing back that format, but ESPN definitely had a say because they're used to having former coaches and former players give their insight into what a team might be doing or what strategy they might be thinking of. So in that sense, I did like that they brought Trevor Whitman. And it was probably Trevor's first time saying, hey, what do you think? I was like, um... And then he has to think on the fly. He's not used to it. But the longer this kind of partnership goes, you're going to get coaches who figure it out and say, okay, what did Trevor do? All right, I want to improve on it. Or, okay, he did a good job.
0: You know what I hope they do is don't keep switching the coaches that do it because they need one dedicated person so we get used to that voice. And secondly, the coach themselves get used to speaking in front of the camera. I guess in this case, in front of the microphone. And I think with the analysts and the color uh, their interactions with that same person will get better over time. They'll build a rapport because I think part of it was Trevor wasn't used to speaking like that in front of a microphone, in front of like millions of people. And secondly, the analysts didn't know what exactly to ask him. It was like they just asked him, you know, what do you think about the cornering? And it was kind of weird because we couldn't hear the corners. Only Trevor could. So he had to kind of do this like interpretation of what the cornering was. I think it would have been a lot better if they let us hear the cornering also. And then Trevor's analysis of that cornering. And secondly, that's the real waste of a brain. If all he does is gives his opinion about the cornering of a cornering, we didn't even hear. So he says, that's good cornering. It's like, was it? We didn't even get to hear it. Ask him what he thinks about the fight. Like, how is the game plan going? Don't just use them to analyze the cornering use them to analyze the fight or bring in somebody who has a uh, judging experience like a former ref, right? Uh, and then have them talk about how they think the, the fight is going as far as the scoring aspect or something like that. I think the in-between cornering assessment is nice, but I think it should be a much smaller part and use that guy for a bunch of other things.
2: I guess it would be like if you got Chris Nolan to do a commentary about what a critic said about his movie yeah it's like what did you think about roger ebert's criticism of Dark darkness like well you could ask me about the movie you have me why don't you do that but instead they just went the extra step of no no what do you think that guy thought
0: you know what else they could do then is instead of a trevor whitman they could bring in somebody from fight metric and they could be looking at the data and just tell you how many strikes landed what happened here what happened there as far as just quantitative analysis He can't tell you what the judges are going to score, but at least then we have something to kind of measure the fight against, you know, I think that would be nice. But at least, you know, now that ESPN is doing it, the door has been open to conversations like that because I wouldn't have even thought about, you know, bringing in somebody to analyze like that in between outside of the analysts. So it's nice that ESPN has done that so we could think about what other things they can do that's kind of outside the box that will make it more enjoyable? Because I think the key is, is educating the fans. And I think the old school model, like especially with Joe Rogan, he's educated the fans as much as he can. But there's guys who know the the game of MMA much better than he does, like the fighters, like a Trevor Whitman, or maybe like Fight Metrics guys, right? So I think we need people like that to take us to the next level. So going back to... Cejudo versus Dillashaw. What were some of your thoughts?
2: The thing people always seem to forget is when fighters are able to take good shots to the head and they have good jaws, they're rarely the guys who cut down significant amounts. Frankie Edgar, when he took all those massive hits, he was at 155 and he barely cut anything. A lot of heavyweights who don't usually have to cut weight can take those shots better. But when you have guys that are depleted, your brain fluids and fluid to your brain is the last thing that gets restored. So it makes sense that when Henry hits you, yeah, maybe TJ could recover at 135, but at 125, his brain wasn't there. So he's slower. So even if TJ sees these moves, I
0: was conscious. It's like, yeah, but you weren't reacting quickly. How much do you think the weight cut was a factor, Jerry, in this fight?
1: Um, The only thing I can say on this is... One of my fellow YouTubers, um, Ramsey Dewey, he's a very famous fight commentator also. Um, He lives in China. He's an MMA coach now. But in his early life doing MMA in China, he'd be one of these crazies that would cut so much. And it affected him. He moved slow. He got knocked very easily. So I think this whole concept of weight cutting should just... They need to get away. They need to do away with it somehow. Maybe it be like, okay, you fighters agree on this weight, get to this weight. I don't know, like, like a month before and stay at this weight and then fight at this way. So I just think weight cuts are so unhealthy. It's so bad for fighters. They're already getting brain damage in the ring. Why force them to do this weight cut and be at risk for more brain damage?
0: Well, you look at all the other champ champs, right? They went up and fought at their healthiest and they all won. Whereas TJ went down and of course he loses. So I think there's a pattern to watch there. Here's another little tidbit that somebody on Twitter pointed out. But basically TJ Dillashaw loses every fifth fight. He won four, then loses to Dodson. He wins four and then loses to Azun He wins four and then loses to Cruz. And then he wins four and just lost to Henry Cejudo. Wow. So it is a weird pattern.
1: <laughs> and he probably consciously knows this too. There's already... Before this fight, there was already a three pattern. So he's like, oh, no, he's probably under a lot of pressure. I got to not make this a pattern again. And then it probably gets to his mind.
2: So his weakness is math?
1: <laughs> <laughs> or the common human thing, which is take a pattern that might be coincidence and attribute it to more.
2: So he's going to win his next four. Yeah. And the fifth guy, everyone's going to be like, I'll fight TJ. I'll fight TJ. Yeah, like yeah. the janitor at the UFC is like, I'll fight him.
0: Yeah. Well, actually something that... uh David Christian was talking about is when you mess with your weight that much, sometimes you don't recover. So that's the other question is after this fight, will we ever see the same TJ again? Because he might have like permanently messed himself up. I doubt it just because there's other fighters bigger than TJ that have gone down to 125. You could argue even Henry Cejudo is a fighter who's bigger than TJ has gone down to 125. So we don't know. But those kind of things happen. And also TJ is in his 30s so the body doesn't bounce back that quickly anymore and tj is also a fighter that has been wrestling and weight cutting his whole life so it does start catching up so i hope we see tj back at his best but we don't know we don't know until hindsight right but then if he loses a bunch we could kind of go back in time and be like oh that was the moment that
1: was the point and when i was in china last year in september i visited the <coughs> olympic village and I saw Henry Cejudo's name because he was in the Beijing
0: Olympics. He won his gold.
1: So I was like, yo, that's Henry Cejudo. I love the guy. Yeah, his name was etched in the stone.
0: And I don't think people realize when you're Olympic caliber, you're a different level athlete. Because most people, if they're that level athlete, they don't go to UFC. They go to basketball. They go to baseball. They go to football because they're higher paying sports. Other than wrestling, right? Wrestling doesn't have a professional version where you could get paid. So you have these high level athletes coming in and they're just kind of at another level. Now, if Henry's at another level above TJ, I don't know, but he is equivalent to if, you know, somebody from a uh, bigger sport like football came not at the end of their career, but at their prime. And not only that, not at their prime, but they weren't just somebody who was in the NFL but they were like one of the best or the best in the NFL. And then they came over, you know, that will be a different level athlete that we haven't seen yet.
2: Yeah. Henry's still young. He's the youngest American, I think, to win the, uh, the gold medal. And he never gets tired of telling people that. Yeah. Like, I was a young. Okay.
1: Drinking game, right? Every time yeah. he says that you drink.
2: Oh, you get fucked up so quick.
0: Actually, we had a football player who was a pro bowler on this card, but we'll talk about him later. So, my analysis of the Henry Sehudo versus TJ Dillashaw fight was that Sehudo came out in his typical karate stance that he's been using in his last several fights, right? And I want to really get detailed into this because there is so much, you know, arguments online about the quick stoppage. What happens is Henry starts out the fight, like I said, karate open hand stance. You know, it looks a lot like what Connor's doing with his open palms and bouncing in and out, right? And I talked about this in our pre-show about how Henry stands in that karate stance, almost inviting the leg kick because he either wants to grab it or he wants to counter it. So he opens up with a nice front kick to a lunge punch. So a lunge punch is something they do in karate to kind of uh, shorten that distance. So he was really far out and then he jumped in, caught him with a front kick. TJ thought he was safe. And with that front kicking leg, he stepped forward and, actually lands a nice punch and then steps back out. He actually did this same kind of technique and combo against Joseph Benavidez. I also talked about this in the last episode where we did the pre-show about how Henry's really had two chances to fight against Dwayne Ludwig trained fighters, Joseph Benavides, and now TJ. So I was wondering if he was going to use the same game plan that he used against Joseph Benavidez. And it looked pretty similar, except this time Henry just looked a lot faster and just a lot stronger. So what happened against Joseph Benavides is that Joseph kept doing those stand switches and doing those feints. And that's how they really start to take control of the pace of the fight. Just like he did against Benavides. against TJ, Cejudo didn't bite on any of those feints and he stood his ground. So TJ kind of does these kind of feints. He kind of gives them these different looks. He kind of squats down like he might be going for a takedown, and he keeps circling both ways. So TJ came in thinking that if I come in with these feints and come in with this uh, right hook that he tends to do a lot into a drag step, into a switch, that Henry would back up. But Henry didn't. He covered up and stood his ground. And when TJ came in with that punch to drag step, his feet were squared. So all Henry had to do was just shove him over. And it's interesting that how that shove changed the whole fight because TJ's feet weren't underneath them and he fell over pretty easily. But it makes sense because he was almost like his feet was ahead of him and his body was already leaning back because he realized, oh shit, Henry didn't back up. He's right here. So Henry had all that force and he was already planted in a karate stance. So your rear leg is really far behind you. So he had that ability to plant down and really shove hard. And all this was set up with Henry not allowing TJ to take the lead. It was a lot of this kind of Conor McGregor style, as I was uh, talking about earlier. And then on the way up for TJ, he gets head kicked by Cejudo. And Cejudo has really become a hard kicker. If you look at the shirt that he came into the ring with, it was a picture of him kicking. So I think he's become very proud of his kicks. And he really kind of throws his whole body into it. So TJ on his way up to standing... Partially blocks the kick. But when you get kicked to the head while you're standing up, your hands won't be in position in time to block correctly. So we saw this a few UFCs ago with Eric Anders when he knocked out this guy named Tim Williams because Tim Williams was just sitting in guard. And then on his way up, Eric Anders timed the kick and kicked him. And Tim Williams couldn't get his hands up in time. Now, TJ did get his hands up, but not fully, right? It was more like he had to block with the back of his hands and his wrists. So TJ got rocked from that kick. From that moment when he was rocked, Henry starts to swarm on him. And TJ went straight to instinct, which is the wrestler, right? And then he goes for a shot, which wasn't like kind of a good setup shot. He just goes for it. He dives for it. But Henry Cejudo is so fast that he still catches him on the side of the head and clips him while TJ's going for that shot. And then TJ gets dropped. And now this is the first time that TJ gets dropped. So this is important to remember. So at this point, Henry gets him around the waist. Uh, In wrestling, you would call this a tight waist. And he's punching TJ and ground and pounding a a turtled up TJ, right? Cejudo realizes that he can't really hit him well from this because he's turtled up and covering the side of his head. And he releases the tight waist to allow TJ to square up because he knows once I get rid of this tight waist, TJ is going to turn towards him to look for a single leg, right? Which he does. And when he does square up with him, he pushes him away with his left. And then when TJ tries to stand up, whether it's for a takedown or just to stand up, I don't know. He catches him with an uppercut with his right. Second knockdown. At this point, Cejudo's not wrestling. He's just sprawling off TJ's shots and looking for a knockout. At this point, because he's not wrestling and grabbing him, this allows TJ to get up. And Cejudo catches him with a right-left, right-left. Hooking combo, like all hooks and all of them land. And watching this all in slow-mo, it's like almost every one of Cejudo's strikes from kicks to punches, they all land. The first time around when I saw it, it was so fast. I assumed most of them missed other than the ones that dropped them. And TJ gets dropped for the third time. And now Henry's all over him, just swarming on him, punching him. Every punch is landing. And then the ref jumps in. So at first glance, yeah, it looked like a quick stoppage to me, too. But watching it in slow-mo where he gets dropped three times and on top of that, before that, he gets rocked. TJ landed one strike and it was a leg kick. That's it. He landed no other strikes, according to Fight Metric. And almost all of Cejudo's strikes were exclusively to the head. And according to Fight Metric, about 80% of it landed. So at this point, it does seem like a defensible stoppage
2: this might be one of the few times when you see fighters train and the footage available and you see, well, is that really what they're doing? How helpful is it? Henry is part of that Neural Force One and a lot of what they do is reaction, timing, distance management. And you see him put on these goggles and he has a focus and then he hits the lights as soon as they come on to sharpen his reaction time and speed and hitting. And Sam, when you mentioned how fast he is. Yes, part of it is that stance, but it's exponentially held by the fact that he's quicker now. He can see movements and react faster. Before, he might have been able to push him and be like a second too late with the kick. But as soon as he pushes him, you understand, boom, hits him with the kick. And as soon as he drops, the wrestling helps him identify what he's going to do. He can throw strikes. And then it Helps that he's been training in speed for so long with Neuroforce that TJ effectively had no chance once he got hit that hard.
0: And I think David in the preview show nailed it when he said it's not so much speed, but it's like reflexes or his reaction speed. It's not necessarily Cejudo always leading. It's as soon as you touch him, like you touch him with the kick or you come forward or do something, his reaction against what you just did might be faster than for you to counter. It's like he kicked you, right? And then from there, you're initiating the shot, but he counters you with the punch before you could finish like ducking down. That's how fast that dude has gotten as far as his reaction speed, how quickly his eyes realize what's going on or maybe his body realizes what's going on. And it can't be just like his conscious mind. His reflexes are trained to just go off of instinct at this point. And I think that's a lot of work with Neural Force One. One of my favorite coaches is his coach. Eric Albaracine, I don't know if he's the best coach, but he's probably one of the funniest guys in MMA. If you just listen to him, he just seems like a goofball. But one of the things that he was talking about was the things we had talked about in previous episodes about now you can't do MMA in phases. Like I'm far away from you, Jerry. So now I'm in like kicking karate zone, right? And then when I get closer, okay, now I'm going to do Thai-style kicks, right? Hitting with my shins. When I get closer, now I do boxing. Now when I get closer than that, I'm going to do like Muay Thai clinching, a little bit of trapping, a little bit of wrestling. That was like a like a paradigm shift back in the day for MMA coaches. That was like super scientific. Now you got to go beyond that. And that's what Eric Alvarez was saying. They don't train like that anymore with Henry. They're going full MMA all the time. So they're not doing wrestling training. They're not doing boxing training. They're not doing karate training. They're all doing everything for MMA. Like, okay, that's a wrestling move, but what what does that look like when you're up against a cage? What does that look like when the canvas is a little bit squishy? What does that look like when their counter to your kick isn't necessarily going to be a shin check, but what if it's going to be a takedown? Like, everything changes according to the rules of UFC, which is there's less rules, right? So they're doing MMA all the time in their training. Everything has to be MMA specific. And that was like really good to hear. And it shows in the way Henry was fighting because even though I felt like TJ is known as the full MMA guy and Henry's the Olympic wrestler, the way Henry is training now, it seems more MMA ready. Whereas TJ, other than his fight against Lineker, where he put the whole thing together, he was doing striking to uh, kicks like he was doing boxing to kicks to takedowns. He normally just punches and kicks. That's it. So if you're fighting him, you look at all his feints, but you got to realize all of those feints. I don't have to bite on all of them because they're either going to be punches or kicks. I don't have to worry so much about takedown and I don't have to worry so much about him clinching me and kneeing me. So there's a lot of things that he's removed. Whereas with Henry, you have to worry about all of that. Punches, kicks, takedowns, clinch, and how he's going to chain the whole thing together. What were your impressions of Henry Cejudo in this fight versus his previous fights? Even though it's like this fight is very short.
1: Um, I was definitely impressed by his speed, and I saw him versus um, Demetrius Johnson live when he was at the Staples Center. Okay. So um, I think when when you see um, him versus Demetrius Johnson. Um, covered by the cameras it doesn't do it justice like when you see it live you really saw how much Demetrius Johnson got dominated by Cejudo it doesn't get like the way the camera angle is it it looked pretty even right but when you watch it live you're just like wow Cejudo really dominated Demetrius Johnson so with that going in um this looked like almost a natural offshoot Um, when when Cejudo fought Dillashaw it looked like a natural offshoot from the previous fight so i I was impressed but I was expecting this basically.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, because there's been a lot of controversy about that fight too. A lot of people say Demetrius won.
1: Yeah, he definitely didn't. If you watched it live, he looked so dominated. Cejudo looks so like um the thing is when I saw it live, I didn't actually see when Sehuda had that dead leg he you know, and for that first half of the first round, he was kind of in, like one of his legs was given out or something. Yeah. But like, besides that, he, Cejudo just looks so far above Demetrius Johnson.
0: So when you saw that live and you saw that weird limp leg thing that was going on, did you just assume like, oh shit, he just broke his leg somehow? Or
1: Honestly, I barely noticed it because all I noticed was, oh my God, Cejudo looks like he's kicking Demetrius Johnson's butt. And so like that, that was the impression the whole time when I watched it live. So when I saw Cejudo go after TJ like this. I'm like, oh, this is exactly what I saw live when I saw it at the Staples Center.
0: Yeah, because the UFC reposted that video of the whole fight yeah. of Mighty Mouse versus Henry Cejudo. They put it on their YouTube channel. I don't know if it's still on there. Yeah, I watched it last night again. Okay. Watching it again, and the first time around, I was so confused. And even the commentators didn't know it was from a kick. But watching it again, Henry hit it pretty well. Even though his foot was like, you know, all going limp, unless you knew to look for it, like you knew his leg was messed up. So this time my eyes were focused on the leg, but if you didn't know to look for it, he really covered it up well because he kept switching stances. He was still circling left to right. He never fell over. So people were talking about why didn't, you know, DJ just run in there and just beat the shit out of him. And he couldn't because he was really doing a good job of like evading, moving even on one fucking leg. That should have been a sign that Henry Cejudo, even on one leg, to have him that have that much mobility, you knew he was like a different level fighter. Even if I have a Charlie horse, I can't, I can't even stand up. I'm like, I'm, I would fall over. You know what I mean?
2: Is that gonna be the new meme, one-legged Henry? He's like the new sea level cane.
0: <laughs> That's the thing, right? Like it's like uh, Henry on one leg took it to Mighty Mouse. So if we think about it in that lens, this doesn't seem that surprising. Now, what's gonna happen if they fight again at one thirty-five? I don't know what happens next to TJ Dillashaw. I don't know. He's already calling for the fight, though. He you know, he's a competitor. He's one of those guys who will cheat to win during sparring.
1: (laughs) You know, when you're supposed to be grappling.
0: (laughs) Did you guys see that video from a while back? Or actually, I don't know how long ago it was, but it was with TJ sparring at uh dwayne ludwig's school in colorado and a japanese like kickboxing champion comes over to spar with him yeah so in that video jerry if you haven't seen it, you have to find it is the bell obviously rings for the end of sparring and tj just walks over to the guy because the guy thought tj was going to shake his hand just socks him in the face as if the fight was still going and it was like several seconds after the bell and then TJ doesn't apologize. He knows the bell sounded because it's not like he has more punches. He hits him and then just walks away. So it's like he's a cheater, but he really is a competitor also.
2: Yeah, I think people who are aware of his past with Team Alpha Male, especially with Chris Holdsworth, probably aren't surprised by that. Where Chris Holdsworth's career was tragically ended because of a knee from TJ. TJ is denying it. But then Holdsworth said, no, that happened.
0: And so my assumption is then that TJ, even though he got knocked out, oh maybe not knocked out, he was stopped by a referee, TKO. Probably the athletic commission wants us to take some time off. But the madman that he is, as far as a competitor, he's probably back in the gym training. And he's probably like constantly screaming about a rematch, just like how he did against uh, Dominic Cruz. Like literally that night and every day, he's just tweeting, Instagramming, Direct messaging, Dominic, for a rematch, right? So I'm sure I'm sure Henry's going to get the same thing, which actually gives Henry the driver's seat to really, like, kind of demand what he wants for that fight. I think
2: if they immediately rematch, that's a terrible idea for TJ because you're not giving your body enough time to recover. And Henry's not exactly a small flyweight either. And you, he moves up, like, you know, he has more power now, too. You do, but he does as well.
0: One thing surprised me about this fight which was the size of Henry. Henry looked massive against Mighty Mouse. In this fight, he looked even fucking bigger and he came in underweight. So the nutrition program that he's on with Neuroforce, they're doing a good job because he looks ripped and just huge. He looked like the 135 pounder. And if you look at them side by side, like during the weigh-ins or the stare-downs, you realize, you know, TJ isn't that much taller. I mean, it's like two inches, I think. Henry Cejudo's head and his shoulders look like it belongs to somebody who's six foot tall. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Not only does he have a big head, but his neck and his shoulders, it looks like it belongs to like a middleweight. So even if somebody has the height advantage, even at 135, I think Henry's just going to have like that man chest like strength advantage. So let's move on to the other interesting fight. There was a lot of fights, but we're not going to talk about all of them. We like to just talk about the fights that were really interesting to us. And the other fight was Donald Cerrone versus Alex Hernandez. And what was interesting was going into this fight, I didn't realize that Alex Hernandez was the favorite. And I was thinking, what the fuck, man? Because I don't know if the odds maker said it that way or it moved that way because of the money coming in. But the night of the fight. He's still the underdog. It didn't end up being even. It just nuts to me. So, Jerry, what did you think about that fight?
1: Um, well, I think one thing I was impressed about was Cerrone's not just a good striker, but he has good takedown, too. So, um, usually you see all these compilations of him doing all these crazy strikes. But, like, he took Hernandez down a few times, and so I was impressed by that. So, he's, he's the full package.
2: When you mentioned that Alex Hernandez was a favorite, I see why they would think that because it's Cerrone's move back down to lightweight. Hernandez has won quite a few in a row. Granted, not against great competition, but he has more of a streak than Cowboy.
0: Yeah, he only had two fights in the UFC before Donald Cerrone. He KO'd Benil Deriyush, which really kind of elevated his stock, and I think people were expecting more from him than he was ready for, and then he beat. Olivier Obama Mercier, the uh, Canadian fighter who's training out of Faraz Zahabi's gym, TriStar. So, Benil Dariush was the famous fight where Alex Hernandez basically comes out, fake glove touches, right? He puts his hand out there like he's gonna glove touch and then just swarms him with punches and then knocks him out. So, i don't know if that's like a legit win that's kind of like one of those cheapo wins in a street fighting like video game you know like street fighter 2 <laughs> just like get bum rush them and do low kicks until they die
2: i also think it happens to be an age thing where alex is younger he's on the come up seroni has had more fights in ufc Force wec and pride history than anyone else victories as well but just fights in general so he might be on his way down in terms of just wear and tear so
0: and first fight back right at 155
2: correct so i think they were looking more at that and the fact that you know when he gets hit he gets quite chinny the playbook is out on cerrone on how to beat him he doesn't like pressure he can't take body shots so enough people have done it so maybe they thought well this up-and-coming kid might be able to do it. So moving down. Yeah, I think so.
0: I think also a lot of people gambling because of the age of Alex Hernandez and also because he likes to switch stances, they got overly impressed by him. They're like, oh, he's like this next generation of stance-switching knockout guy. And Cerrone's old and, and slow in the first round. This is the perfect recipe for uh, you know, Cerrone to lose. I think even the UFC might have thought that because you fucking put Donald Cerrone on the undercard. Yes, albeit the main event of the prelims, but the main event of a prelims is still a preliminary fight. There is no such thing as a main event for the prelims. It's just the last fight on the preliminary card. So it didn't seem like the UFC really uh, still believed in Donald that much. Right. And especially against the guy who's only had two fights, it was more like. They were hoping this would be the breakout fight for Alex. That's what it looked like for me from a matchmaking perspective. But I kept thinking to myself, what does Alex Hernandez do that Cerrone hasn't adapted to in the past, right? Like, whatever he does, it's not just the old adage of he's an experienced fighter, so he's seen it all. It's not that Cerrone has seen it all. Yes, he has seen it all, but he's also in fights adapted to a lot of things. He's a very adaptable fighter, right? It's not like he's going to stick to one style throughout the whole fight. If you bring in something new that he's not used to, he has shown in fights previously that he will change and adapt his style and change his game plan mid-fight. Where people catch him is in the first round where he doesn't have a chance to adapt. So basically in this fight, you're banking on Donald Cerrone basically fading as a fighter, not so much that Alex Hernandez is the better guy. That's what it seemed like to me, why the odds were stacked the way it was. And also, Alex Hernandez was like talking so much shit going into this fight. And Donald Cerrone, he fights pretty well when you talk shit against him, you know? The other reason why I was surprised at this is because it's not so much that Alex Hernandez is green. He's green in the UFC, but he's fought a lot of fights and he's been a champion in other organizations. But he's trying to implement a style that's very complicated which is constant stance switching. He's trying to do the Demetrius Johnson, TJ Dillashaw, Dominic Cruz style. And unless you have the right coach who really understands the complexity of fighting like that, you might be just doing it for no reason. Like what I mean is in boxing, very few fighters fight like that. And the reason why is because it's easier for you to stay in your one stance and counter those guys who switch stances, right? I think MMA There aren't fighters who are at the caliber of striking yet to just counter any type of stance switching. And I think also in MMA, it gets a little bit more complicated because the takedown element makes it harder for you to counter because depending on which leg you're on, it makes certain penetration steps to a takedown easier. Like if you're a right-handed fighter in boxing, right, you stand orthodox with your left foot forward. But if you're a right-handed wrestler, you stand with your right leg forward. So there's threats that you have in MMA that you wouldn't have in boxing, right? So that's what makes it a little bit more challenging. But Hernandez has still very unpolished footwork. Even when he's switching his stances or moving side to side, he's often kind of like off balance and he crosses his legs when he's like still circling, right? He's circling side to side. One of the the rules about when you're circling the cage Don't let your feet ever cross over because you could get taken down and you can't strike effectively, right? So I see him doing that, which you would never see the Neo footwork guys, as they call them doing, right? And also, like when I watch Dominic Cruz or Demetrius Johnson or Max Holloway or TJ Dillashaw, I understand why they're stance switching. They're doing something. They're baiting. Whereas the whole time I was watching him and in, in his previous fights, I couldn't understand any time that he switched stances other than just to do it, other than as kind of like a tick.
2: It came off as, oh, I should do it now, as opposed to there's no reason behind it. So when we talked to Justin Hamilton, he brought up that there has to be a philosophical underpinning to why you're doing certain moves.
0: Justin Hamilton being the head MMA coach for Savannah M, a one champion fighter who's going to be in a future episode. So we have already got it in the can. We haven't released it yet.
2: So when Alex Hernandez does a stand switching and moving around the cage, it just looks like he's imitating something somebody told him he should be doing. Yes. Like, hey, don't forget to stand switch. Don't forget to move laterally. It's like I gave you instructions, but I didn't show you how to do it. So you just assume this must must be the correct way.
0: It's like, "Eh, not really. And another thing that was interesting that Trevor Whitman said is we didn't get to hear the corner, but what he was saying is You're giving this guy too much information. They were saying that about Alex Hernandez's corner. Just keep it simple. Give him a clear goal on this fight. But they were telling him to do this while your right hand is doing that, blah, 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 like overcomplicating it. So it made me wonder, like, are the coaches also imitating a style? And they kind of watched a lot of video and kind of were like, okay, we're going to, we're like kind of brainy technical guys. So we're going to, you know, break it down and then teach it to our young charge, right? But the thing is, is, When you listen to Dwayne or any of these other guys, they don't tell you all the stuff to do with your feet or your hands. They just give you the goal of like pressure, punch, don't back up or whatever because they've already drilled those techniques into you anyway. So to teach you something in the middle of a fight, it's too late. Everything that needs to be taught has to be already taught. Everything has to be like Henry Ceuta's fight, instinct now, just drilled in. He touches you, you should have a clear response. You see that with Max Holloway's corner. He does beautiful footwork and
2: striking evasion, his corner never talks about it. It's like, hey, it's time now. Like, hey, stop fucking around. That's it. Because he knows instinctively what to do and what they've drilled.
0: Actually, his corner is really good, not so much about telling him what to do. They tell him more what they see the opponent doing. They're like, oh, I think he's weak in this or that. And actually, if you think about it, isn't that what the corner should be doing? Telling you how the other guy is fucking up? Because all the right things you're supposed to do, that should be already drilled in. And that's how I knew Max Holloway was such a high fight IQ fighter, because in like one of his early fights, I saw him uh, when they were still showing what the corners were saying, like talking to his corner and his corner was saying, I see this happening in the fight. And then Max Holloway is like, no, 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 no. This is what I'm seeing. And the corner is like, oh, is that what you're seeing? OK, I think you're right. And So Max is also analyzing what his opponent is doing. Right. Yeah. That was another thing where it was just like, oh. Maybe, you know, this is still kind of him learning on the job rather than just executing what's already been drilled into him.
2: To bring it back to that ESPN example, you see it with other sports. That's why team sports have team captains that can make an audible and change the plays that the coach gives them. Because the coach can say one thing and the players are seeing something else. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to do this. Like, I'm reading the defense. They're going to go for so-and-so.
0: Yeah, what Hernandez... After a while, the pattern was whenever Hernandez is just standing in front of Cerrone, he just switches stances. If he's not punching and there's nothing else for him to do, he just switches stances. That's basically it. It's like almost like uh, I don't know what to do with my hands, you know, when I'm talking to somebody. So I'm going to put it in my pocket, right? Like I'm standing in front of you in a fight. I don't know what I should be doing right now. So I'm just going to switch stances. And that's what it seemed like. So I was just counting the clock, waiting for Donald Cerrone to figure out this pattern, figure him out and, and then execute. And initially, he came out like a ball of confusion, Alex Fernandez, I wasn't even sure what he was doing, so neither was Donald Cerrone. So he came out really fast, rushed him, stand switching and he caught him with a punch that clearly rocked Donald Cerrone, right? And I was like, oh, shit, is he just going to swarm him? But then once Donald Cerrone got the takedown, I was like, okay. This is the point where Donald Cerrone now, he's slowing down the pace of the fight, not just to slow it down or steal momentum, but I took it as Donald Cerrone's using this time on the ground to download all the information that he saw because in his previous fights, when he got finished in the first round, he wasn't able to take them down. He wasn't able to slow it down for his brain to process everything he sees because he's really good at analyzing the fight in between, but he needs a little bit of time. He's a very analytical fighter. So and that's the other thing about Donald. People sleep on his wrestling. Like if you remember his WEC days, he beat Jamie Varner by outwrestling him. And he had really good wrestling, and uh, he's used it in other fights when people forget. And he's only been getting better at wrestling. So when he was wrestling Alex Hernandez, it seemed like Donald Cerrone was the better MMA wrestler. And so after they got up, Donald Cerrone made Alex Hernandez pay every time he stand switched. Every time he was switching his legs, he got punched in the face.
2: When you mentioned that Cerrone needs time to download that information... He reminds me of that version one or version 1.5 of a fighter. Yes, they can adjust, but they need that time. Guys who come in like the Holloways or the Henry Cejudo, they can adjust on the fly. Whereas like, okay, okay, give me two minutes and I'll figure it out. But he still needs that two minutes, which he buys with the takedowns.
0: In between rounds, when it looked like the momentum was switching and Donald Cerrone was taking over, I was kind of curious, okay, now he's going to come back. In his interviews, Alex Hernandez sounds like a really smart dude, actually. So along with his stand switching, when he talks, he kind of sounds like Dominic Cruz. He's very eloquent and he seems very cerebral. So I was like, OK, maybe even though Trevor Woodman says they're overloading the kid, you know, maybe he's going to make some adjustments. And it still came out like came out the same way, athletic and high pace. But it didn't seem obvious what his aim was. Like I didn't know what he was aiming for. Is he looking for a takedown? Is he looking to do you know uh, lure in Donald to to strike at at first and then to counter that? Is he looking to do you know uh, uh, pressure fighting and and try to corner Donald Cerrone against the uh, the cage? Is he going to do ring cutting? I don't. I, it didn't seem like he had a real aim other than just win and just overload Donald Cerrone with information and different looks. But at this point. Donald Cerrone figured it out. He figured out his pattern. And Donald Cerrone also realized when Donald Cerrone is punching at Alex Hernandez, all Alex Hernandez does is back up. When Alex Hernandez is under duress, he has all these sand switches, but he'll just start backing up if you start punching at him. All that footwork, all that Neo footwork goes out the window. He just starts walking back in a straight line. Even in a clinch, he pulls back. So it was almost like when he was walking backwards of course you're walking back if you're walking backwards in a straight line you're going to get punched by a longer fighter with straight punches and then when you walk past even further you're going to get kicked in the head and that's what kept happening and then in the clinch he would also just try to pull his head straight backwards instead of like trying to pummel in or push the hands off or duck and and weave his head out he just pulled his head straight back which for Donald Cerrone was like a slingshot where he used that to let his arm straighten out and then pulled him back in to elbow him. And the thing was, now Donald was fighting Alex with a pattern. He was like, this is what you're going to do every time you do this. Here's my pattern to counter. And so even though Donald was doing the same thing over and over to him to counter, Alex Hernandez had no answer to Donald's counters. So Donald Cerrone can adapt to what Alex Hernandez was doing and download all that information and do something about it, Alex couldn't do the same to Donald Cerrone. So this is also how you know the stand switching was mostly for show. Because even though he was stand switching, when he came in, Alex Hernandez also came in in a straight line. His defense was to walk back in a straight line, and he came forward charging at it also in a straight line. So after a while, Donald Cerrone, every time uh, Alex Hernandez came in, just timed the knee, just kept kneeing him. Over and over again, and if you've ever watched tape on Donald Cerrone, that's one of his favorite counters. When you're over lunging and just running at him, he's gonna knee you. And I'll bet you, leading up to this fight, he knew that Donald Cerrone do that, and he thought in his mind, I'm not gonna do that. But when all his plans went out the window, he just went straight to, I'm just gonna rush at you and just try to generally win. I don't know what my aim is other than to just knock you out and win. And Donald Cerrone just <laughs> kept kneeing him. I think
2: the first few times that Donald Cerrone kneed him, he had this split-second look like oh I can't believe that worked I thought people would have adjusted by now like I'm surprised it worked Mm. oh you okay he did it again it was like oh you don't know any better I'm gonna keep doing it
0: Donald Cerrone in this fight look like classic Donald Cerrone and a lot of times when people say that that they think that means that the old Cerrone is back or the old fighter is back on his game that's not what it means it means this is the first fighter in a long time that fell for all those classic moves. Like, I don't remember the last time uh, somebody fell for those knees over and over against Donald Cerrone, right? So this was the first time. So classic Donald came back because he found a fighter who would fall for all those tricks again. Eventually, the end came with Alex Hernandez getting knocked out by Donald Cerrone. And after a while, it reminded me of that Essen Barbosa versus Dan Hooker, where... It was just a young guy getting bludgeoned by a, a veteran fighter. And Alex Hernandez's face was just like covered in blood. And I was like hoping, please don't let it go like the hooker fight where he's just going to get demolished. You know, And unfortunately, uh, Alex Hernandez fell because if he didn't get knocked out, it would have gone probably like that Dan Hooker fight where Donald Cerrone would probably have to bludgeon him almost to the end of the fight. So <laughs> sometimes, you know, it's good that your brain just goes out. Other than that, the other interesting thing about this card was the UFC bringing in, as the co-main event, Greg Hardy. Now, for those of you who don't know who Greg Hardy is, he's a former NFL player. He's been an all-pro guy. So he's not just an NFL player that played in the NFL and then got into the UFC. We've had that before. He's one of the really good NFL players. Now, whether he's in his prime or not, that's a different argument, but he's, he was good in the NFL and a lot of teams would have loved to sign him, but he's been banned from the NFL because it's not just alleged, right? There's actually other UFC fighters who have allegations about domestic abuse. So that's already a problem with the UFC with Greg Hardy. He's been convicted of domestic violence. So that's different. So he's been banned from the NFL and UFC's like, Oh, You've been convicted of domestic abuse. Cool. Why would they put him as a Komei event? Why would they sign him? What, what do you think, Jerry, from your perspective?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I thought from a marketing perspective, it generated controversy and it gave people so much to root against. So people would want to watch. Um, when When I watched the... TJ Dillashaw versus the fight, the second one live. When TJ Dillashaw came out, everyone sitting in the entire Staples Center booed at TJ Dillashaw. Oh, really? So I was thinking from that angle. So I assume when Hardy came out during this event, every single person watching live would have booed, and every single person in front of the screen watching would have been like, Screw this person! I going to get back to FL. So I think that's one of the draws. You want these enemies. It's almost like pro wrestling. You want these like evil characters that everyone roots against. So I think it might have been a smart marketing move, as much immoral as, as immoral as it was.
2: Yeah, I don't know if it was a smart marketing move in terms of putting it on co-main because he still has less than five fights. He's still learning as he goes, and he's a heavyweight, not known for their conditioning. So if it doesn't end quickly in the first round and it goes longer than that, they're going to gas out. And this is your co-main for your first fight on ESPN. And these are supposed to be the best of athletes out there. So with Henry Cejudo, you have that marketing, like youngest American Olympic champion against TJ Dillashaw, who can make history as champ champ. That makes sense. But in the co-main, oh, here's an ex-NFL player who's making his primetime UFC debut against a fighter who's been handed losses only by Naka. Yeah, I get the narrative you're trying to spin, but if it doesn't doesn't go that way, how are you going to make this look? You would have been better off putting Cerrone Hernandez as the main event and maybe
0: as the co-main event.
2: As a co-main event and putting Hardy's fight as a main event, quote unquote, for the prelims. I think that would have been smarter because if it doesn't go well, it gets buried in the prelims. If it goes well, it serves as a good lead in to the main
1: card. And people watching live would still be booing and so excited to see this
0: crazy evil person. But the matchmaking for this fight, because they put it against Alan Crowder, it looked like they wanted Greg Hardy to knock this guy out to so it wasn't like oh here's a heel for you guys to you know cheer when he gets knocked out here's a heel who's gonna steamroll this other guy and then you're gonna have to see him around for a while right that's what it looked like from the matchmaking booking side of it and then of course he loses by illegal knee like a very egregious illegal knee and it's kind of like what did you think would happen you didn't know this is what was gonna happen you didn't know he would break the rules like that (laughs) The interesting thing about this fight, though, is it did kind of, kind of answer one question that I did have. I still didn't see an NFL player in his prime crossing over to UFC, but I did see a pretty good NFL player who's not that far out of his prime fighting in the UFC. And my question was, is what level of an athlete will this person be? Like, are they that much better than UFC guys? You know, American heavyweights. If they could, they probably would have gone to the NFL, right? So is he that much of a higher quality athlete? Can't say for sure, but for heavyweight with a guy that's had this limited amount of training and experience, like I knew he didn't have enough time to be good on the ground. I knew he didn't have enough time to be a good wrestler, but how fucking fast this dude was at that fucking size, how hard he hit his speed and his power was still amazing and the other thing is his build he's built like a tank where he's wide as fuck he's tall but he's mostly arms and legs like when he flexes when he knocks people out he just looks like something out of a kid's cartoon you know it just doesn't look right and it's not like he's ripped or anything with chisel muscles just his frame You see the other guy who just looks like a big heavyweight, like you would expect. Like other big heavyweights you've seen in MMA, right? If you watch his contenders fights. And then you see Greg Hardy. And even his knuckles look outsized compared to the rest of his body. You're just like, dude, this guy's a figurine. Like usually if it's a toy like that, you press on his forearm and his fist flies away. You know, like it just looked, he looked like the Hulk. So it did kind of answer that, that if and when UFC makes enough money that some of these guys in their prime would either come over sooner or they maybe not go into the NFL, right? And just come to the UFC directly. Like what kind of fucking monsters will we have?
2: We already saw glimpses of it with Matt Mitrione because for a heavyweight, for a guy to move that quickly with that kind of hand speed was impressive. And even though he didn't make it very far in the NFL, you see it with Dominic Reyes that kind of athleticism, speed, and how well he can adapt on the fly, even though he has no wrestling or striking background.
0: Same thing with Brendan Schaub, right? He got to the finals of the Ultimate Fighter, right? With very little training. Like all those guys got very far. Like Matt Mitrione, it still doesn't look like he does MMA well, but he does well because of his athleticism. And he wasn't even like one of the best guys in the NFL, right? None of these guys are. Other than Greg Hardy, we haven't seen somebody uh, at, like, the highest level of NFL caliber. And even John Jones, out of the three brothers, he said he's always been the least athletic. Yet, in the UFC, he's probably one of the most athletic. Who else can, like, do stuff with both sides of his body? Like, he could punch well with both hands. He could kick well with both sides. He's strong. He's fast. He's long. And I don't know about now, but he said even up until a couple of years ago, when him and his older brother wrestle, his older brother still beats the shit out of him.
2: I will be interested to seeing how some some of the wide receivers guys or cornerbacks guys who are tall, lanky, the John Jones type, how they would do, how the running backs, like the Marshawn Lynchers, would do at like light heavyweight or middleweight. Because we know somewhat of the answer of how heavyweights would do, but how would the midsize NFL players do in MMA? Well,
0: Purses better go up to like 10 million a fight and shit for that to happen. Now, I don't know if this story is true, but one of my friends said back in the day, right? One of my friends was an MMA fighter. He said at his MMA gym, right? When they were rolling, this big football player guy came in, right? And he was a college player. They didn't know who the fuck this guy was, but he just came. He was very humble. He was nice and just said he wanted to just try out, you know, MMA, grappling, wrestling. You know, and he was so big and they just wanted to wrestle with somebody big and athletic. And they heard this guy plays football. They just were like, "Okay, we need a big body like that. You want to come in and spar with us? No punching, just like wrestling and jujitsu. He said, "Okay," And so he gets on the mat, doesn't know shit. Right. And everybody's trying to take this dude down and everybody and all the guys there are like MMA fighters and former wrestlers and they're athletic. So my friend said, like, people couldn't take him down. They couldn't choke him. And then one guy like armbarred him because they started from the ground and he just stood up and like lifted him up and then just slung him off. And at the end, nobody submitted him and he just walked out. And then he said, my friend said, years later, he realized when he saw that kid on TV, he's like, oh shit, that's Troy Polamalu. <laughs> now, whether this is a true Troy Polamalu story, I don't know this is the way he told it to me, but it was like Troy Polamalu on the come up. And he just said, that's when he realized like guys who are professional athletes and big. They're not like us MMA fighters who are like, we, we're we doing this not because we could have done any other sport. We're doing this because we love MMA and we couldn't do every other sport. <laughs> like probably no other sport wanted us. This is either the only thing I'm good at or this is the only athletic endeavor I want to do. Whereas Troy, Palomalu or types like that, every sport, I think even including basketball would love to have a guy like that. You know what I mean? So we haven't seen that in the UFC yet. Somebody of that caliber. So when they say though that UFC has the best athletes in the world, no, they don't. They have the best fighters in the world, but best athletes, maybe certain weight divisions like 125 or certain weight divisions. But even then, I I don't know. There might be depending on like if you're talking about like maybe above 125, but 145 and a 155, even like some world-class soccer players that might be better athletes, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, when you look at, let's say, Blake Griffin, 6'8", 240, can you imagine what they would do as fighters?
0: Look at Deontay Wilder, right? Kind of like an okay basketball player. And then he comes to boxing and he becomes world champion.
2: That I think more so than football players, I'd be interested to see how basketball players do. I think that height reach and their ability to move quickly and that vertically, oh my God, that's scary. Can you imagine a flying knee?
1: I knew this guy, he was division one football player and he was a linebacker. So he wasn't a quarterback, he was a linebacker. And he started Wing Chun after college and his Wing Chun was just different. And so he taught Wing Chun with a flair of, he's got this football player athleticism. And, you know, you could say whatever about his Wing Chun and all the BS, but still, you don't want to mess with him because he's got that athleticism. And it was really funny, because he was a football player, all his students were ex-football players. So, like, the Wing Chun people had a school just different. They were all these huge athletic people, and um, um, not all the them were as big as him, but all of them did Wing Chun different. They had a different explosive power. And I'm sure if they sparred with other types of styles, maybe even with MMA fighters, they might give them a run for their money.
0: You know what? Even if they weren't trained in Wing Chun, they would still kick everybody's yeah, ass. exactly. <laughs> like, they already came in already be- being able to beat up most people. Yeah. If you add anything to that, that's just a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. But even without that, they could probably kill most of us. They could probably, like, even if... You know, I've trained Brazilian jiu-jitsu like 100 years more than them, which, you know, I've been training for a long time, right? If the dude's strong enough and big enough, he could probably grab my wrist and make make me punch myself. And, and <laughs> what am I going to do? right? <laughs> I could try to wrap my legs around it. Like if it was like the fucking big show, right? Because there's this myth. They, they're t- trying to make it like seem like I thought MMA would make all the mysticism go away, but it's still around. And it still exists for some reason in BJJ. But it's like if I get an armbar on the big show from you know WWE, right? And he's like about 400 pounds and he's seven foot about, right? It's gonna be basically my body weight trying to extend him, right? And if this was like in my competitive days, let's say I was like 140 pounds, is my 140 pounds trying to straighten that arm out, right? Now, it's not exactly 140 pounds because I'm also creating a lever and a fulcrum. So it will be that plus more. But if he could curl 140 pounds, he could also just bend his arm too. Like there's a chance I might be able to do it if he's flat on his back and then the ground acts as the a uh, sturdy like uh, base to push off of for me to create my lever to arm bar him, right? Which is like when Noguera did to Bob Sapp. But what I'm saying is if I'm trying to, arm bar him and he's like, I do a flying arm bar and I'm trying to extend that arm straight. He could just curl me. You know what I mean? And there's also a chance that even if he was on his back, he could just roll to his side and curl me anyway. So the thing is, is that size can't overcome a lot of things and strength can overcome a lot of things.
2: So you're saying under the right circumstances, you could beat Big Show.
0: If he was flat on his back and I already have the arm bar fully extended with the thumb up and I'm already like full torquing when you say go. And then you're also sitting on his chest and then Jerry over here is pulling my shoulders down to give me extra leverage. Yes, I feel confident that I might be able to armbar him.
2: That's great. So when Ronda Rousey said she could beat Kane under the right circumstances, she was saying if... She also said Shaq. Yeah, so if Edmund was holding down Shaq and Kane and then her teammates would also help her extend, she would win.
0: Right circumstances has never been defined, right? So if I get to define the right circumstances or she does, yes, actually under the right circumstances, anybody can beat anybody. What right means that variable, let's not define that. But, but as a legal statement, right? Jerry, in a legal statement, you under the right circumstances can beat an army of men.
1: I was teaching the rare naked choke when I was in China to my cousin, my cousin's tent. He pulled out a knife on me and then started fake stabbing me. So he could have beaten me. Yeah. And though I had his back. You know, I was like, this is what you do. He's like, oh, really? I have a knife. And he started.
0: He there you go. Killed me. So that's that's it. If anybody says, can you do this or that? That should be the answer. Under the right circumstances. Yes, I could beat you. Uncle or cousin. Can you beat Cain uh, Velasquez? Can you beat Conor McGregor? Can you beat Brock Lesnar? Under the right circumstances? Yes. Mayweather found the right circumstances. <laughs> That's right.
2: Beat Big Show, beat Conor, beat Tension. He's a true under the right circumstances guy.
0: Yeah, he beat all the guys I named. So go, <laughs> Including the Big Show. So there you go. So I think this is a good place to end Jerry. It was nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you both. So if people want to see your stuff, if they want to find you, if they want to send you death threats, what's the best way?
1: Um, you just go on Facebook or go on YouTube, search Fight Commentary Breakdowns. Or if you just go to fightcommentarybreakdowns.com, you can find me.
0: Cool. And we'll add all the links in the show notes.